Hi, welcome back to Legends of Surgery. I'm your host, Tyler Rouse. Today we're going to cover not a specific operation, but rather a technique that has its own unique and interesting history. Microsurgery, or the use of microscopes for performing operations, has been around for less than 100 years, but in that time a number of specialties have adopted it to push the frontiers of the possible in surgery. We'll cover briefly the history of the microscope, then delve into the early pioneers of this technique. We'll then talk about some amazing progress, including the ability to reattach or move digits and perform neurosurgical procedures to the very forefront of microsurgery, hand and face transplants. There's lots to cover, so let's take a closer look in this episode of Legends of Surgery. Let's begin by defining microsurgery. This is simply any type of surgery requiring an operating microscope. Although otorhinolaryngologists, hereafter known as ENT surgeons, were the first to make use of this technique, eventually many others jumped on board. Today, the microscope can be found in the ORs of many specialties, including general surgery, ophthalmology, orthopedic surgery, neurosurgery, plastic surgery, pediatric surgery, gynecology, and urology. This is because the microscope allows for the anastomosis, or attaching together, of very small blood vessels and nerves, as well as small tubular structures like the fallopian tubes and vas deferens for the treatment of infertility. So before we get into the history of the microscope in the operating room, let's talk a little about the history of the microscope in general. Now, glass, precious gems, and even containers of water have been used to try to magnify images from time immemorial, but the story of the first microscope starts in Middleburg, Holland in the 16th century. The Dutch spectacle makers Hans and Zachariah Janssen, father and son, and Hans Libersche, around 1590, discovered that objects could be magnified by aligning two lenses within an elongated telescope tube. They thereby created the first compound microscope, defined as being composed of more than one lens in a sequence. Now amazingly, the famous Italian scientist Galileo Galilei independently discovered the same thing, and that by inverting his previous invention, the, quote, tubum opticum, end quote, also known as the telescope, he could, quote, see flies as big as hens, end quote. Now, a quarter of a century later, Giovanni Faber, a colleague of Galileo and fellow member of the Accademia dei Linci, or the Academy of the Lynx-Eyed, coined the term microscope from the Greek micro, meaning small, and scope, meaning to aim or shoot at. And once available to scientists, it became very popular to study this previously undiscovered microscopic world. The English natural philosopher Robert Hooke used a compound microscope to discover and coin the term cell from his study of cork. One version of the story I've heard is that the cell walls looked like a series of walled boxes, which reminded him of the tiny rooms occupied by monks, which were known as cellula. It was first used in his classic book on his microscopic findings called Micrographia in 1665. Now, the next great discovery with a microscope was the identification of microscopic living creatures. This was done by Anton van Leeuwenhoek. He was originally a linen draper in Holland and first became interested in the microscope to count the number of threads per square inch in material. He developed an interest in lens making and would end up making over 500 microscopes in his lifetime of such good quality that it wasn't until 1957 that someone figured out how he did it. Now, using this wonderful microscope, he discovered bacteria, protozoa, which is a type of single-celled organisms, and spermatozoa, which earned him membership in the Royal Society of London. Microscopes over the next two centuries continued to be used to understand microscopic life, but were limited by certain physical characteristics. That is until an amateur microscopist and wine merchant in 1832 made advancements to the design of microscopes that significantly reduced spherical and chromatic aberrations, allowing for greater resolution of the images. That amateur microscopist? None other than Joseph Jackson Lister, 
father of the surgeon Dr. Joseph Lister. See podcast four. Now in 1848, a German machinist named Carl Zeiss opened a microscope workshop in Jena, Germany. Zeiss engaged a professor of physics at the Jena University named Ernest Abb as a technical advisor to the company in 1866 and made him a full partner in 1875. Now, Ab revolutionized lens making, allowing Zeiss to become the first mass producer of high quality microscopes. Another major breakthrough by Zeiss, this one in 1893, was the concept of stereopsis, meaning perception of depth from visual stimuli from both eyes. This involved using two eyepieces rather than one, which would become very important in the operative microscope, as you can imagine. Finally, Zeiss played a role in something called loops. Now, loop magnification actually came to surgery before microscopes did, with the first operating loop spectacles used in the 1860s, although this was mostly as corrective lenses. So what are loops? These are simply small magnification devices. Now, unlike magnifying glasses, they don't have a handle. Most people would be familiar with the image of an eyepiece used by jewelers and watchmakers. In 1912, the Zeiss company presented a very practical binocular loop system with a working distance of 25 centimeters and very lightweight. Now, this opened the door to modern microsurgery and this type of loop system is still in use today by surgeons in almost unchanged form. So what became of the Zeiss company? In 1945, a large part of the Jenna Glassworks was destroyed and a substantial part of the scientific and management staff were relocated to the U.S. occupational zone in West Germany. The works belonging to the Carl Zeiss Foundation were expropriated by the state government of East Germany, but the two halves of the company re were reunited in 1992 following the fall of the Berlin Wall and the reunification of Germany. Okay, that's enough about the history of the microscope. Let's get to some surgery. The first person to use a microscope in the operating room was the Swedish ENT surgeon Carl Olaf Sigerson Nylon, who lived from 1892 to 1978. In 1921, at the University Clinic in Stockholm, Sweden, the then 30-year-old conceived, built, and used the world's first surgical microscope, which was a modified monocular, meaning one eyepiece, Brunel Lights microscope. Nylon first used it for operations on animals, but in November of 1921, he used it to operate on a patient with chronic otitis media, which is inflammation of the middle ear, making him the first true microsurgeon. Now, he continued to use it for clinical middle ear surgery, but his colleague-in-chief, Gunnar Holmgren, lived from 1875 to 1954, commandeered Nyland's project, mounted a binocular Zeiss dissecting microscope on a tripod, and added an external light source, and thereby introduced the first binocular surgical microscope in 1922. ENT surgeons in Europe continued to develop uses for the operating microscope over the next few decades, along with technical advances to the microscopes themselves. But the next specialty to recognize the usefulness of the operating microscope was ophthalmology. In 1946, the American ophthalmologist Richard Parrott from Chicago borrowed a binocular operative microscope from his ENT colleague G.E. Shambo for use during an eye operation. Other specialties adopted microsurgical techniques during the 1960s, including neurosurgery, vascular surgery, and plastic surgery. At the first public presentation of his results in 1950, Parrott already claimed that, quote, ophthalmosurgery under microscopic control has, to my mind, made all other treatment of cataracts obsolete, end quote. He might have jumped the gun a little there. Now, the next important milestone was developing the ability to operate on small blood vessels under the microscope. This would open up applications to microsurgery for a myriad of possibilities. One of the important sites for developing microvascular surgery was Burlington, Vermont, led by neurosurgeon R.M.P. Donahue and vascular surgeon Julius Jacobson. 
As this was such a new concept, they had trouble obtaining funding, and Donahue had to ask for a personal loan from a local bank to start the venture. Here's the story of what instigated their interest. Jacobson was asked by a pharmacist to denervate the carotid artery in dogs for an experiment. Now, the only way to do this was to cut the artery and then rejoin or anastomose it. The problem was that the feat was supposedly technically impossible due to the small size of the artery. Jacobson, realizing the problem was one of visual acuity and not manual dexterity, tried operating loops and magnifying glasses without success. Then Jacobson remembered the use of the operating microscopes of ENT surgeons that he'd seen in his residency training. He contacted the Zeiss company and they sent their physicist Hans Littmann from Germany to Vermont, who helped to design a two-person stereoscopic surgical microscope. This became known as the Littmann Diploscope, which became very important in training other surgeons on microsurgical techniques. Jacobson and his colleague Ernesto Suarez were able to successfully anastomose carotid arteries in dogs and rabbits with 100% patency rate, meaning the vessels stayed open, at four months on vessels averaging 3.2 and 1.4 millimeters in diameter, respectively. This ability to operate on small vessels would open doors for other specialties, which we'll get to in a minute. But when Jacobson first presented this at a national meeting in 1960, a chair of vascular surgery from a prestigious institution stood up and said, quote, This is very nice work but it is simply ridiculous to bring a microscope into the operating room, end quote. Now, Jacobson would go on to refine instruments and sutures and coin the term microsurgery. Now, plastic surgery took note of these advancements as well. Dr. Harold J. Bunk, a plastic surgeon in San Mateo, California, had tried to anastomose vessels as small as 1 to 2 millimeters without a microscope unsuccessfully. So he started in 1958 trying to perform ear reimplantations on rabbits with a microscope, and succeeded after 54 failures. Nabunk became the first to anastomose a microvessel, or one millimeter in diameter, in an animal which was previously thought to be impossible. Now, there's a funny story that's been told about his attempts. At one point, between grants, he was forced to continue his experimental animal operations in his garage, quote, much to the dismay of family and neighbors, end quote. And at one point, he and his wife, who assisted all his microsurgical operations on animals, had to sneak their microsurgical subject, a monkey, into the local hospital in the middle of the night to obtain x-rays. Bunk refined many of the instruments needed for microsurgery, consulting with jewelry and microassembly industries, borrowing their micromanipulation instrumentation and techniques. In 1966, Bunk introduced the next frontier of microsurgery. He was able to transplant a primate's great toe to its thumb, introducing the idea of reimplanting amputated digits and extremities. This new era was ushered in at the world's first panel on microsurgery held at the annual meeting of the American Society of Plastic and Reconstructive Surgeons in New York City in November of 1967. Throughout the 60s and 70s, the ability to reconnect small blood vessels and nerves allowed for reimplantation of amputated digits, as mentioned, and the transplantation of digits, such as the transfer of the big toe to replace a lost thumb. In April of 1968, Cobot of East Grinstead, England, home of the Guinea Pig Club, see Podcast 46, did the first clinical toe-to-thumb transplant to the non-dominant hand of a 31-year-old woodworker who lost his thumb, index, and middle fingers in a circular saw accident. Another major advancement was something called free tissue transfers, or free flaps. This involved taking tissue from a donor site, completely detaching its blood supply, and transferring to a recipient site. The circulatory system is re-established by reattaching arteries and veins, this can be used to reconstruct body parts damaged from tumors or trauma or surgery. 
The number of firsts in applications are too many to fully cover, so let's focus on two more areas. These are neurosurgery and vascularized composite tissue allotransplantation. Don't worry, I'll explain when we get there. So the history of microneurosurgery cannot be told without talking about Dr. Ghazi Yazergel. Born in Turkey, he trained in medicine in Germany and Switzerland. By 1953, he was studying neurovascular surgery, meaning operating on the blood vessels of the brain. In 1966, Hugo Kreyenbull, the chief of neurosurgery in Zurich, Switzerland, recognized the importance of the new field of microsurgery, and so sent his young Turkish neurosurgeon to the U.S. to learn the techniques. Yazergil spent a year in Burlington, Vermont, with Donahue in his lab, learning microsurgical techniques, and then returned to Zurich in 1967. On October 30th of that year, Yazergil did the world's first superficial temporal artery, middle cerebral artery bypass. Donahue did the same less than 24 hours later, not realizing that his student had beat him to it. Yazergo continued to develop the fledging field of microneurosurgery. In the early days, he used a truck to cart his operating microscope from hospital to hospital for each case. He eventually established the world's first cranial-based microsurgical laboratory. One difficulty was finding a way to cover the microscope in the sterile operating field until he discovered turkey bags in the grocery store, which he contoured over the handles, but the intense heat from the light source caused, quote, much trouble and in one operation was smoking, end quote. Yazriel eventually settled on sterilizing the microscope with ethylene oxide gas, which was originally developed by NASA to sterilize spacecraft and other high-precision instruments going to outer space. Yazriel took the ideas of pioneers and more than anyone else made microsurgery an integral part of modern neurosurgery. Charles Drake, another famous neurosurgeon and potential subject of a future podcast, said about him, quote, To me, Gazi Yazriel made microsurgery what it is today. He was a virtuoso, a magician under the instrument, and clouds of surgeons visiting Zurich went home with visions dancing in their minds, determined to take it on, end quote. Now, the final area that we will cover in this episode is an area called vascularized composite tissue allotransplantation, but you may have heard it in the more common description, hand and face transplants. The longer version of the name indicates that it requires a blood supply and is made up of not one type of tissue like many transplanted organs, but rather a mix of skin, fat, muscle, tendons, ligaments, nerves, and bones. Before we get into the history of these, it's worth covering some of the controversial aspects of both. Now, organ transplants in general are done to treat life-threatening conditions, and so the risks of lifetime immunosuppression to avoid rejection, which include things like infections and even malignancies, can be justified. But hand and face transplants are considered life-enhancing, not life-saving, and so are more controversial. Proponents argue that these are for complex injuries that leave patients with structural, functional, and aesthetic deficits that cannot be addressed by other means. Now, face transplants have other ethical issues, including identity perception and other psychological issues, and the cost should be considered. A hand transplant has been estimated to cost over half a million dollars U.S. compared to 20000 for a prosthetic hand. And a face transplant has been estimated to be anywhere from 300000 to a million U.S., now, are these operations being done just because they can? Is this a fair use of resources? But we're not here to debate these things. We're here for history, so let's get to it. Now, technically, the first hand transplant was done in Ecuador in 1964, but the patient rejected it after only two weeks due to the poor immunosuppressant drugs available at the time, so we won't count that. The error really began on September 23, 1998, when a French surgeon, Jean-Michel Dubernard, and his team did a hand transplant on a 48-year-old man in Lyon, France, which took 13 hours. The donor was a brain-dead French motorcyclist. The recipient, Clint Halem, was from New Zealand, 
and had lost his hand in an accident while in prison. He was climbing a ladder with a circular saw at a building site within the prison when he fell and found himself sprawled on the floor, minus a hand. Now amazingly, it was Hallam that had convinced doctors in Leon to attempt the transplant. In his own words, quote, For years, I had one fixed idea. I'm going to get a transplant. I'm going to get a transplant. I was prepared to go to the ends of the earth to meet the team capable of giving me my hand, end quote. After two years with the transplanted hand, which had no motor control, Hallam stopped taking his immunosuppressive medications, and the hand was amputated on February 3rd, 2001. He claimed that he had become mentally detached from it, raising another issue with this type of transplant, the idea of accepting a foreign body part as one's own. But he was a less-than-ideal patient, not adhering to his physical therapy regimen, uh, not taking his anti-rejection meds regularly, and failing to undergo testing to monitor nerve regeneration and hand function. His doctors in his hometown of Perth, Australia, even asked the police to convey their pleas for him to show up. Maybe this wasn't such a surprise in retrospect, as Hallam turned out to be a bit of a shady character. The Lyons police charged him with stealing the equivalent of 40,000 pounds from a French liver transplant patient he had befriended in the hospital. And at the time of the transplant, he was wanted in Australia for fraud, selling bogus cards for buying fuel. Even the lead surgeon, Dubernard, was fooled by Hallam, saying, quote, We were all used the surgeons, and the psychiatrists. He played on our emotions, end quote. Unfortunately, the second-hand transplant on a 37-year-old man in Louisville, Kentucky, in January of 1999 went much better. And the first double-hand transplant, also done by DuBernard, was declared a success on January 14, 2004, which had been done five years prior in secret. It had taken 17 hours and involved a team of 50 doctors and medical technicians, including 18 surgeons. Yeah, as of the end of 2014, which is the most up-to-date numbers I could find, there have been 107 transplanted hand upper extremities in 72 patients with 24 losses. The success with hand transplants helped pave the way for face transplants, our next topic. The first partial face transplant happened on November 27, 2005, which included the nose, lips, and chin on a 38-year-old French woman named Isabelle Dunoir. Her own dog mauled her face after she had passed out from an overdose of sleeping pills. Now, there's some controversy over whether or not it was a suicide attempt. The dog was thought to have been trying to wake her and became frantic rather than attacking her. Now, DuBernard also performed this surgery, this time in Amiens, France. Dunoir struggled to accept the appearance of her new face, saying, quote, It takes an awful lot of time to get used to someone else's face, end quote. Now, she suffered from complications of her anti-rejection medications and eventually developed cancer, which she died of in April 22, 2016. Face transplantation continued to progress with the first full face transplant occurring on March 20, 2010 by a team of 30 doctors in Barcelona, Spain on a 30-year-old male farmer known as Oscar who accidentally shot himself in the face, which included the entire facial skin and muscles, cheekbones, nose, lips, and teeth from a donor. The operation took 22 hours. Prior to the transplant, the patient was unable to breathe, swallow, or talk properly on his own and had had nine previous operations that had failed to improve his condition. Amazingly, not long after the operation, he regained feeling in most of his face, was able to move muscles and speak, and even had to shave a week after the operation. One of the more recent and famous cases occurred in 2015, which is considered the most extensive face transplant yet performed. A former firefighter, Pat Hardison, was badly burned in a mobile home fire in Mississippi on September 5, 2001, when the ceiling collapsed around him and his mask melted onto his face. He was in hospital for 63 days and underwent extensive surgeries, but because he lost nearly all of his eyelid tissue, he couldn't see properly. Hardison would go on to have 
71 operations, but his appearance was shocking. In his own words, quote, My kids were scared of me. You can't blame them. They're young kids, end quote. And he would say that neighborhood children, quote, ran screaming and crying when they saw me. There are things worse than dying, end quote. Hardison fell into a depression. His wife divorced him, and he had to declare bankruptcy, losing his home. Hardison also became addicted to painkillers. Now, the operation involved a full face and scalp transplant, including ears and ear canals and parts of the anterior facial bones. Now, the inclusion of eyelids was a first for a transplant. The operation was done by a team led by American plastic surgeon Eduardo Rodriguez. The donor was a 26-year-old man named David Rodbow, who had died in a cycling accident. His mother consented, stating that her son had always wanted to be a firefighter. Hardison was given a 50-50 chance of surviving the surgery. It took 26 hours to complete and involved more than 100 doctors, nurses, and support staff. This was done in mid-August 2015 at the NYU Langan Medical Center. It was a success, and Hardison is now able to breathe and eat on his own and go outside saying, quote, I used to get stared at all the time, but now I'm just an average guy, end quote. He can drive again, his vision has improved, and he is sharing his story with other injured firefighters, other first responders, and the U.S. military. And while a few of the facial recipients have died, some from surgical complications, one due to tumor recurrence likely secondary to the immunosuppression, many have been able to return to their lives with reports of recipients getting married, enrolling in educational programs, pursuing degrees, and playing sports. As well, they're able to do things that many of us take for granted, like walking down the street, meeting people, and being with friends and family without feeling anxiety. And for many, that is worth the risks of receiving a transplant. Perhaps in the future, with improved medications and even gene therapy, those risks will be far less and more people can have their lives restored. That wraps up another episode of Legends of Surgery. I hope you enjoyed it. I'll now be taking a brief holiday break to rest and recharge, but I'll be back with a new episode on January 12th, so watch out for that. I'm thinking of trying something a little different. Rather than focus on a specific surgeon, procedure, instrument, or event, I'm going to highlight the history of a specific organ, the appendix. In the meantime, please rate the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download episodes. Leave a comment there or follow me on Twitter at Surgery Legends. Like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on the podcast or ideas for future episodes. And as always, thanks for listening.